Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My guest today is Fabio Vigi, who's a professor of critical theory and Italian at Cardiff University, the author of Critical Theory and the Crisis of Contemporary Capitalism, and most recently of a series of essays published in the Philosophical Salon that offer a extremely provocative and counterintuitive perspective on the pandemic that we've been living through for the past two years and which seems uh, like it has no end in sight. And I think he offers some of the most interesting insights into why that is the case. Um, so thanks for joining me. A pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me. So let's get kind of right into your main thesis in these recent writings, um, which, I mean, you, you stated in various ways, but perhaps the most um, succinct is when you state that um, the pandemic is a monetary event aimed at prolonging the lifespan of our finance-driven and terminally ill mode of production. Yeah. So this, you know, I think is a pretty good encapsulation of the, the thesis, um, which, which really locates the fundamental illness at the level of political economy and then sort of understands the pandemic yeah. as a, in a sense, a sort of... Um, emergency treatment for this deeper yeah um this deeper sort of ailment at the level of the the basic structure of our economic reality so sure. perhaps you could explain yeah, I mean, that when you said that yes it's um when you sort of sum it up through my words yes it, it does make sense in a, as a as a defensive mechanism almost i think the first one is the or the defensive mechanism but it's also a kind of attacking or counter-attacking i think they mentioned to that which maybe we can discuss briefly in terms of how it's supposed to kind of defend or kind of prop up um the, the financial sector because basically it's about allowing um the current sort of uh, financialized economy to continue the way it is despite the the growing um, risks and you know the unmanageability unmanageability of of that system right it's not manageable any longer uh, we've we've seen it in 2008 with the first sort of credit crunch um, and then after 11 or 12 years of continued monetary expansion which means um, asset purchasing from uh, from the Fed and other central banks which means um, throwing um, loads of money into the financial sector to keep it going, right? So after tw about 11, 12 years of that, we got to um, September 2019, where we had another credit crunch fundamentally in the, in the interbanking system, the sort of repo market crash, which then led to a further acceleration, a kind of a, an even higher dose of the same medicine from the Fed, and clearly the situation is beyond manageable now, but it seems like the only, um, the only, you know, the only alternative they have is not really an alternative because it's, it's more of the same. 
And I think that's where we get to, um, to COVID and, and, and to the so-called pandemic, because that becomes the only way, you know, the kind of emergency capitalism I've been discussing, the only way in which the system can sustain itself is precisely through emergencies. So the big question here, what is the, the, the kind of economic role of COVID, right? And I think it's fundamentally, it's defensive economic role is deflationary. So fundamentally, since the very beginning, beginning it has worked in, in a kind of deflationary mode to keep, um, to keep uh, inflation from developing into hyperinflation, which would be social chaos for everybody, including for, for you know, those who are kind of controlling the situation. And that's certainly something that they don't want. So um, COVID has allowed definitely um, this prevention of hyperinflation because after all the money that they're thrown into the financial sector, the moment that money becomes available and begins to circulate at high velocity in the real economy, that immediately causes inflation, rising inflation, and then hyperinflation. We're seeing that today. Uh, two years later, we are back to square one in many ways. So we have more or less the same measure that we had to start with. Uh, on top of that, we have inflation. Inflation, which is quite scary, right? Um, and, and I think what we're seeing now, uh, like Omicron and, and the new variants that are exploding everywhere are, again, you know, kind of the, 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 a response to, the, to, to, to this inflationary um, danger that, that is, you know, kind of is getting out of hand a little bit. Um, and as I said before, I think what they really don't want is hyperinflation, is this to become a proper. And maybe here, however, we can also think of a kind of, uh, of COVID as a sort of attacking um, strategy as well, because, you know, on the one hand, they're saying, uh, first, of all, the, first of all, they're now saying, oh, we recognize inflation. It's not, it's not uh, transitory, you know, we, we were wrong. It's not really transitory, it's something that is yet to stay. You know, even, even Jerome Powell said that recently. Um, so they recognize that it's real and it's probably gonna stay for a while. Um, but at the same time, I think, whilst they're saying that they are fighting inflation, they're sort of using it. Uh, as the only way in which this system can again prolong its its lifespan, because on the one hand, they can't touch the financial sector, so they need to keep it going with low interest rates and with uh, these purchasing programs. Right. On the other hand, that causes inflation, and um, and there's nothing really they can do about inflation. Perhaps they can use it in their favor as a kind of controlled demolition program where they basically impoverish people more and more um, and they get them used to being controlled in many ways so that the system can sort of reproduce itself, you know, in this crazy, grotesque, disproportionate way where, where you know, wealth is supposed to emerge from the real economy, but it actually emerges through financial speculations, which is, you know, that I think the truly perverse mode of functioning of uh, contemporary capitalism. So we can kind of expand on that if you like, but I think, you know, I just wanted to say that there's both a defensive and, 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 a, and a kind of attacking strategy at work here with, um, with particularly with inflation, with the management uh, of inflation, which is today the big thing, right? Because in the USA, 
it's now 6.8, uh, which is the highest since 1982. So it's really a problem. Um, but I don't think there's, there's, there's a way out in, in, in kind of traditional capitalist terms, because normally what you do when inflation is so high, you just raise interest rates. That's the way to deal with inflation. But they're kind of snookers. They can't really do that because if they raise interest rates, you know, we get, um, we get a number of explosions in the financial markets because the financial markets keep going precisely because there's cheap money there, because, because the cost of money is kept artificially low, you know, close to zero or, or even below zero. So um, the situation, I think we are facing an impasse, a kind of um, deadlock. The situation is deadlocked. And perhaps there's no way out except by continuing along the way. I think kind of kicking the can, right? Prolonging this kind of agony, um, which, which implies, unfortunately, the further impoverishment. Um, and eventually, if, if it goes to plan, you know, if everything works uh, from their perspective, um, some kind of monetary slavery, really, to be really dark. <laughs> but I think that's what the end game really will be about so i'm going to stop here but yeah 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 so i mean one thought i've had and i I think what you're arguing sort of helps me clarify and extend this thought is um something that's interested me is you know for uh for much of the past decade before this pandemic moment began you know there was kind of this um this uh notion of austerity, right? Right. Fiscal austerity as this kind of, um, you know, which was often critiqued as this, you know, from the left and and from sort of mainstream liberals, even as this kind of zombie policy that, um, you know, couldn't really claim to do what it, you know, it, 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 was presented as this way of, um, of enabling growth and, um, and sort of, um, you know, allowing the economy to become more dynamic. Now, all of the evidence suggests that wasn't happening, but nevertheless, it was still imposed over and over again in all sorts of contexts. I mean, you're in the in the EU, or at least now formerly EU oh. context, um, <laughs> um, and and I'm in the US. So there were different versions of this. But, but then one thing that, you know, is very interesting is um, I remember, you know, back in 2019 with the, the UK election, um, you know, basically the new conservative government that came in mm. had, you know, and and the the previous conservative government, you know, of David Cameron had been heavily identified with those kind of austerity policies, right yeah. after the after the two thousand eight crisis, um, and then the new conservative government that came in had basically um, announced that austerity was over, right? There, there was no yeah. longer the it was no longer the kind of guiding policy framework, and so that you know, interestingly occurred before the COVID moment began, although just a few months before, right? And then one of the things that we've seen is um, the the complete se- seeming disappearance of fiscal austerity as the kind of guiding framework mm. for policy. Yeah. But at the same time, um, the introduction of this new set of sort of weird zombie policies basically you know, lockdowns, mandates, et cetera, which yeah. seems similar in that they've 
utterly failed to do the thing that they were mm. um, supposed to do, right? That they, think, they failed I, I, over and over again. Right. And yet think, they continue to be rolled out. Um, and so that I've always yeah. thought there was kind of a resemblance there. Mm. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that, because in some yeah. ways it seems like it, these, these new kind of public health mm. quote unquote policies that have been brought in, which, which you read yeah. as, as fundamentally monetary in nature, um, you know, do seem to have kind of taken the place of yeah. austerity and, and are similarly, um, are, you know, are, are similarly functioning as kind of zombie policy because yeah. they don't, they don't actually do the thing that they're, they're proposed as doing, but nevertheless, they're continually brought in over and over again. Right. I think it's very, very good point. Very good observation. I think, um, I think we're talking about crisis management fundamentally, right? It not only, obviously, it's fundamentally not kind of pandemic, sanitary, health-related crisis, but it's macroeconomic crisis. And the basic question is the production of of wealth, the production of surplus value right in our economy and the question to ask is where does surplus value come from obviously from my perspective i go back to marx a lot in this critique of uh, capitalism uh, value surplus value is produced to uh, productive labor and so capital investment in labor right in wage labor in in productive labor Um, and that's what uh, we see less and less, and as a response to that, you know, we see less and less of that because of capitalism alliance with science and technology, fundamentally with automation. So uh, more and more labor is thrown out of the system rather than reabsorbed into the system, right? I think that's the big, big kind of uh, systemic problem of of contemporary capitalism. So that's the that's the big issue to start with: the creation of economic value. Um, so what we've seen in, in, in recent history of capitalism is two different and kind of alternative attempts at creating value. One is the kind of neo-Keynesian policies of public spending, fundamentally, right? And uh, the second one is the neoliberal kind of um, management um, based precisely on, on, what, on what you were talking about earlier, right? This... this um, and um, as well as the deregulation of the financial markets, let's not forget. Um, but I think both of them have failed. You know, they, they simply, they, they kind of run out of rabbits to pull out of the hat. They, they, you know, in terms of economic policy, they, they don't seem to be able to, to get out of this. So with COVID, you really see what's at stake. And what's at stake is that money now is created out of nowhere. You know, more and more money is created out of nowhere, whether you then give it to the state to spend for, you know, public public spe- spending, infrastructure, etc., or you leave it in the financial market to do what it has to do there. It's more or less the same thing, not, not, not really the same thing, but the basic issue is that this money comes from a few clicks of the mouse of a computer, right? It comes from central banks um, expanding their balance sheets, fundamentally, and it doesn't come from the real economy. It doesn't come from where it should come from in a capitalist, in, in a minimally functional capitalist system, you know, it should come from there. And then your fiscal policy should also be a consequence of wealth being created through labor. So, through, you know, tax revenues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what we see at the moment is that this is not working. Look at deficits, look at, you know, public debt, 
of all the, the, the big economies and even the, the ones that are, you know, uh, they're not so big economies, you know, those economies which are supposed to develop, but they haven't really developed, you know, and we've been waiting for their developing for a while. Um, deficits. So um, the, the, the system is really kind of imploding and it's been imploding for a few decades now. But I think now we're seeing a proper kind of a proper evidence of that implosion in the sense that, you know, we got to the stage of what, what, what I call emergency capitalism or at this stage pandemic capitalism. And probably there will be further emergencies um, ahead, you know, certainly. Um, but the bottom line is that this is the only way in which a financialized, hyper-financialized system where money is created out of nowhere or through speculations or through interest, you know, rent, etc., is unable to sustain itself. It's unable unless it uses uh, emergencies and I think the impoverishment, further impoverishment and I guess, authoritarian control of populations, right? I think this is the only way in which capitalism can reproduce itself socially in the future. There's no, unfortunately, there's no, a lot of people are nostalgic of, of, of you know, the good old days of post-war kind of Fordist expansion. This is not coming back. Yeah, and so, I mean, in some way, we might read this, the, scenario you're describing as this kind of grotesque um, hybrid of the two prior models that you mentioned, right? That it's this kind yeah. of, um, it's this kind of uh, faux Keynesianism, it's, but, it's, but I'm wedded to this, this kind of strange um, new version of austerity. Which... I like that. Yes. I think, I think you're absolutely right. You know, and also, but we become more and more dependent to this kind of centralized um, management of monetary management from central banks. You know, the real government, globally, internationally, are more and more central banks. We depend on, on their creation of money, the way they um, sort of connect with the financial sector, particularly, but also with states, with states' deficits, the way they help sort of financing state debts, um, and that therefore allowing states then to... Um, um, you know, to, to invest into, 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 into the real sort of society. But what I think we shouldn't lose sight of is that the money that we're talking about, the wealth we're talking about is fictitious. It's not, you know, capitalist wealth produced through labor, but it's money created out of nowhere. So sooner or later, this is bound to, um, to come down to earth, all this fictitious wealth and cause inevitably some kind of massive devaluation, mass devaluation of wealth, um, which is already, I think, emerging in the form of inflation, right? Inflation is a form of money devaluation, you know, which means that money has less and less value, which means that your purchasing power is being eroded, um, which means that at some point you'll have to go and, um, and buy bread with you know those images of, of people pulling carts sort of full of money to go and buy butter and bread from 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 Weimar in the twenties. You know, I think this would this is the danger, and I think that they want to avoid that danger precisely because they wouldn't necessarily know how to deal with it. You know, if that if it comes down to that, then it's kind of civil war, 
it's um it's 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 trouble that they don't want so um so i think they will try to find way of of executing what i call uh kind of controlled demolition you know little by little you know the chomsky idea of raising the temperature little by little not not to not uh, not to scare people too much but you know without even people being aware all of a sudden we find ourselves with less you know, the middle class has been destroyed, the middle class has been destroyed, the, the kind of working class has been totally marginalized or, you know, excluded. Um, and maybe even this idea of CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, which is probably the, the, the kind of form of control that they are aiming at, you know, eventually at least, even though they're openly talking about it already. So they're preparing that kind of weapon. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, again, all in all, it's a sort of authoritarian, implosive, capitalism that that is the model i think of the future uh, unless unless something changes drastically unless you know people begin to do something about it or yeah so uh, just in terms of one sort of likely objection or hmm. concern people would have you know i think um perhaps there's a sort of uh brief discussion of the sort of ontological status of the virus itself might be worthwhile mm. because, you know, I think a lot of people will hear this sort of analysis and think that it amounts to um, a sort of denial of, you know, biological reality or something like yeah. that. And, you know, I mean, I think one, one way that I've responded to this or, you know, have, have thought about this um, even before I started reading your analyses was, you know, I think, I mean, just here's one example. I mean, in, um, I guess, 2009, we had the H1N1 pandemic, right. right? And I mean, I have a friend who's a doctor, actually, you know, he he um, was a guest on this show uh, a few weeks ago, but he, um, you know, he pointed out with that pandemic, I mean, on one hand, you did have like a sort of initial rollout of certain things we've seen, like, I mean, it was when I think they started putting hand sanitizer all over mm. the place in institutions. Okay. Um, but I don't know if that was true in, mm. in the UK and Europe, but it was definitely a thing you saw in the US. But, you know, basically there was no surveillance, right? So we have, we have, we really have no idea of the extent of that pandemic because we simply weren't testing for it, right? And so yeah. this, whole, this whole drama around case counts that we have mm. today is, um, you know, which we can talk about why there's a great deal that is sort of, you know, fictitious about that yeah. entire enterprise. But, um, you know, it didn't exist or it didn't reach the same extent simply because it, the tests weren't being conducted. Right. So so simply by um, engaging in this kind of surveillance, you, you know, construct a, a reality, which is the reality of these these sort mm. of um, charts and graphs that show yeah. case counts, which which then becomes, you know, is kind of smuggled in as, as a sort of substitute for underlying biological reality. And then if you have any questions about that, which, you know, is, is mm. a, a sort of, is essentially a simulation. I mean, I, I sort of, you know, I think about it in sort of Baudrillardian terms, Absolutely. you know, it's, it's I, a, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's one of the most sort of postmodern yeah. phenomena Abs we've absolutely. seen. Absolutely. I, anyway. I look a lot at Baudrillard as well. I've, I've been, I've been rereading Baudrillard because of this notion of hyperreality and this notion of, of simulation that you've mentioned. I think they're really apt to describe where we are today, right? Hyperreality means that we don't even have a real reality to compare the fiction with, you know, <laughs> we only have this hyperreality and therefore it's more real. 
than even real reality. You know, it's it's um, so I think Baudrillard is a great reference to have today. Um, insofar as the virus is concerned, I'm not denying that the virus exists, right? I mean, of course, there's a virus around. Um, so um, the problem, of course, is the pandemic. It's not the virus. But there is a virus, yes. I think these emergencies always have a real basis, right? That's, that's the kind of important thing to underline. There is a real basis, but there's also a huge disproportion between the impact that that the real basis has and, and the measures that we've adopted, obviously, to fight it. The, I mean, the, the disproportion is huge and is grotesque even, right? And I think that signals that there's, a, that there's a kind of, there's a there's another type of virus, you know, a kind of microeconomic virus that is around that is much more dangerous than the, than the other virus that we're thinking of all the time that was so... You know this this media bombardment. Of course, it changes from 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 country to country. I guess, but it's it's more or less ubiquitous. You know, and two years later, we're still dealing with exactly the same issues: masks, social distancing. You know, all these restrictions, which I think really are a symptom of this macroeconomic virus we're talking about. But fundamentally, to answer your question, I'm not denying that there's a virus. <laughs> That's not the point. <laughs> so yeah, there is a basis and for. Right. And I mean, I think um, what people, you know, again, we could go back to various previous pandemics, um, including, you know, particular influenza years and um, and H1N1 and so on. And, um, you know, what I think I think in some way we may have seen a kind of, you know, and perhaps we could get into your um, your writing on this as well. But but I think there were certain kind of trial runs going on of you know, what the kind of larger political yeah. and economic utility of yeah. this sort of an event might be. But, you know, what, what we also saw was, um, you know, th- there were other viruses that circulated globally um, that, you know, w- we simply, you know, there was no comparable response to. No. Um, Listen, and so, that, yeah. so, I mean, you, you also kind of go into the way that, um, you know, among these various kind of, elite global nebulous bodies, you know, there was a great deal of discussion of pandemics in the, in the years leading up to 2020. And so, so there is some kind of sense that they were Mm. um, at least, you know, in a sense, you know, putting out some trial balloons, (laughs) sort of um, what the larger political ramifications of this kind of an event might be. I think they knew that they had to prepare some emergency of that kind because of the way in which the economy was growing and and, and the downturn was, was, you know, they talk about a downturn in the economy uh, already in summer 2019. They're very well aware that the economy is unsustainable, the way the the financial system is developing is unsustainable, and that there will be a downturn pretty soon. They say that. There's there's official documents, public documents that you can check, where these people, you know, the the, the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, um, you know, the Fed, um, BlackRock, who's a big player in all this, uh, of course, they already knew that, that and, and I think they, they, they had been preparing this, this emergency narrative for a while, as you said, right? And then the moment came where it had to be used, right? It was there, and um, there, was, there was a reason for it to use it. There was an explosion, a deflagration in the financial sector, and that was the time where they could 
use the the card that they had up their sleeve right and and so they they they, they produced it and they developed it and they turned it into um into a global emergency little by little not not straight away necessarily because at the beginning if you remember there were there were quite a lot of resistances even 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 those who then you know even even the kind of medical experts who then became those who really are you know the most sort of draconian in 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 expecting certain measures to be in place initially they were not necessarily understanding it they were not necessarily in favor of 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 those measures and then little by little they kind of were convinced and so um in that respect right the, the, i think the argument is that, that i often hear is okay but how how could they all be in agreement and more than 100 countries reading from the same script i mean that's just not possible and i would say it's possible <laughs> actually it's actually possible because there are supranational entities which we know work very well they connect all the time and although um countries and and powers are often you know in conflict with each other because there's there's this thing with you know called um you know they are always competing with each other competition right um so there are geopolitical conflicts there are also there are also moments where you know they they need to stick together right with because the alternative would be bad for everyone the alternative would be terrible for everyone it's all connected we know very well that the economy global economy especially the financial system is is all interconnected so if something goes wrong in a certain part of the of the world you know it has consequences like a domino effect for you know all all other countries who are involved and therefore you know i think there are synergies you know strong synergies uh, that outweigh in many ways uh the conflicts and um and and the competition between between different um countries and different powers um so i it doesn't it doesn't st- strike me at all as impossible that they might have reached some kind of agreement on pushing a certain emergency narrative related to a virus um because as i said especially with the repo market crash of of september 2019 the situation all of a sudden had become truly unmanageable right difficult to manage without some kind of extra intervention some intervention from outside yeah and this i mean I, you know something that also strikes me in relation to this is um you know if you look at what happened you know again this this sense of dominoes falling that you know we yeah. can think back to sort of february march um mm. 2020 and you know the thing it most resembles is i mean in my memory is perhaps the sort of Lehman Brothers moments, you know, of the financial crisis. And there, you know, again, you do have this kind of, you know, essentially the world um, acting in some kind of coordinated or or not coordinated, but sort of spontaneous and emergent response to this crisis. But, but it looks like coordination. And what's interesting here is that, you know, this is often described, you know, that what happens in the financial sphere is often described in terms of contagion. Right. Mm. And so there's a kind of odd mirroring of, um, of this kind of, um, you know, this kind of financial uh, contagion, um, I think that, as we I think, saw unfold, yeah. and then the the sort of um, the the strange. I mean, on one hand, the the response, you know, the virus itself, but then the the response to it having the same kind of appearance. 
Absolutely, yeah. Contagion is, the good, is a good metaphor to understand what goes on in the financial system if something goes wrong in a certain sector, like the repo market. There would have been a contagion in all other uh, markets, you know, the bond market, the derivative market, which is absolutely huge, you know, and something goes wrong there, then everybody's in trouble. And eventually, it reaches the real economy, and eventually you go to the to, to, you know, to the cash point and, and, and there's nothing there that comes out. And that's where you get civil wars and people end up with empty stomachs. You know, they, they need to feed themselves and they would do anything to do, um, to do that. So, you know, uh, that is something, that stage, I think, is something that they want to avoid as much as they can. But, um, yeah, the contagion in the financial sector is something that I think it started, as I said, in 2019, um, end of 2019, September 2019, and um, but this, the, there were already signs everywhere else that you know, you know, the, even in the real economy. I think Germany had entered recession that year. Italy was in trouble. Japan was in trouble. So there were strong signs. China, I think, China in the summer 2019 also experienced some kind of uh, credit crunch in the financial sector. So I think, yeah, I think they knew that the time had come. For something quite drastic and um you know something had to change radically and i think um there's a fed official who said um you know at that time i think one of those meetings um we need to be aware and used to the fact that next year things will be radically different um so you know okay you know maybe that's not necessarily the signal that gives it away but there were a number of things, number of documents, number of papers that were circulated in those meetings that really pointed to the fact that an extraordinary type of political of um, of policy had to come in um, to um, to kind of stem the downturn that was going to happen, and and they they explicitly talk about isolating the real economy, right? And to me, that's what really gave it away. That's where the penny dropped for me because. The talk of isolating the real economy from financial downturn, which is a quotation from, I think, a BIS paper, um, really kind of says it all, right? This is exactly what happened with COVID a few months later. Um, the necessity to isolate uh, the real economy whilst the financial sector was being repaired through these huge injections of money from the Fed. Um, because if that money had started circulating, as I said, in a kind of credit-based economy, real economy, it would have caused a tsunami of, of huge proportions and, and that, wouldn't, that, that nobody could control, really. So um, that's the kind of defensive mechanism that, that um, yeah, took place at the time, I think. Yeah, and this, I mean, it also helps account for this sort of bizarre sequence of events where, you know, I mean, because... Um, you know, the, another thing that's striking that I don't think people appreciate enough is the degree to which, you know, there was a kind of public health consensus and it was completely overturned um, during those few months, right? That, that basically um, the, the entire uh, shared framework for how to respond to these sorts of events right. was, was yeah. abandoned um, rapid, you know, suddenly. Um, and so, you know, again, there's also a kind of ideological contagion there of some sort where, you know, all of these authorities um, basically, and as well as, you know, across the kind of scientific 
and medical community, there was a, a complete 180 as far as how to respond to these yeah. sorts of things. And, you know, the entire, um, you know, it's, it's so strange, right? Because you so have the evidence, Wuhan right? yeah. and, and you have the Wuhan lockdown, right? And, and basically prior to that, there's no, um, there, there's no, you know, it's, it's very bizarre, right? But we, you know, we have uh, people thinking about how to respond to pandemics for a long time, right? There's no, um, that, you know, there's always a sense that something like this would be a bad idea, right? And would, would have, you know, too much collateral damage, um, would, would ultimately fail anyway, and so on, right? But, ne- yeah. but then you have this, um, you know, sort of mediatization of the Wuhan lockdown. Um, and then you have, you know, this kind of, you know, dominoes falling across the world as other places embrace this policy entirely based on this one graph, as I understand it, right? Which is that supposedly this, you know, yeah. that, that, you know, this flattened the curve and therefore everybody else has to do it. Yeah, three weeks, um, you know, in three weeks, flattened the curve and then we go back yeah. to normal. And here we are two years later. Yeah. And that curve is still going up. Now they're not counting deaths anymore because they've had the vaccine. So they, I don't think, you know, that would work. Um, but the cases, so infections, even even though, you know, you could have you could have COVID and be fine or have mild symptoms, uh, very mild symptoms, which, you know, don't mean that you're necessarily ill. Um, so there's a number of things. But, I mean, the contradictions there, uh, you know, t- for me, there's so many of them. I kind of lost count, really lost count of all those contradictions. I remember the first thing that really kind of surprised me was when I saw uh, images from China, like videos, uh, clips from, from, from China, where these people were falling in the street. Remember the titles in Italy, particularly, uh, less over here, but in Italy, they really put them on the newspapers uh, online as well. These videos of Chinese people dropping dead, like dropping dead literally in the streets whilst, whilst walking or while standing in the street which is something you never seen anywhere else in the world, right? You never seen it anywhere else in the world. So what is this about? And my conclusion was it's cinema. You know, this is purely cinema. Um, it, it can't be anything else because it can't be anything else. You just don't die like that of, of, of coronavirus. It doesn't hit you like a sniper has just, you know, shot you. Um, so that's one thing. But there's so many, so many contradictions that, that clearly signal that this has been used at least but I would say prepared and planned in many ways um, to use precisely uh, when needed, you know, uh, at, you know, in the moment of, 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 of need. Um, so, and then there's, there's been this mass hypnosis um, taking place. It's interesting also from a psychological or psychoanalytic angle, the way that, you know, people have responded um, you know, basically fear works and it continues to work today. It's pretty obvious. There's some some nice analysis, I guess, to be carried out also in terms of how mass psychology works, um, mass hypnosis works. And of course, they knew that. Uh, They they, they have behavioral psychologists working with governments all the time. So this is nothing new. Um, It's pretty obvious. And I'm like... It's not a matter of, you know, people think, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist for saying things like that, but it's just common sense. It's, it's real. It's much more real than you think. Um, power has always plotted, has always conspired in many ways, right? Uh, since the Romans or, or before. So why should we be a, 
surprised that it still does today. Um, there are always you know, forms of power is always a form of control that reproduces itself whichever way it can. Um, so I'm not surprised at all that these things happened. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see this is not well, the, the contradictions, as I said, there's a mountain, mountain of contradictions, the way they've changed the definition of the pandemic, for example, the way they counted uh, initially the dead, you know, um, with COVID or of COVID and so on. There's a number of things that it's, you know, you either decide not to see and you make a decision in, in, in your mind, not that you don't want to see them, you don't want to think about them. Or if you see them, you're immediately, you should immediately have this moment where you think, oh, there's something else going on here. It's not just the pandemic. Um, but I guess, I think most people decided to just switch off, you know, um, and, and believe the fear mongering that went on and, and fought for it uh, without, without searching for, for other causes, for deeper causes behind this. And I've lost friends on this, you know. Uh, people suddenly decide not to talk to me anymore when I mention this, and then obviously continue to do so. Um, but yeah, I think you've got to make a choice, right? You either decide to look beyond the surface here, or you just stick with the surface and, and switch your mind off. And and you know, good luck to you. One thing that I think people maybe have trouble grasping or, you know, this would be another angle of skepticism is, um, you know, how should we understand the coordination of these sort of public health authorities with, you know, both on the global level with the WHO and, you know, the various national entities in charge of that? Like, how should we understand the coordination of that? type of authority with um, the financial system? Because I think that's where, that's where some people might say, you Some know, people have this belief, deep belief that institutions are doing good for them. Institutions run on money, right? WHO is subsidized by, by, by these big financial entities. I don't, need to, I don't need to quote them, you know, there's a list of them and we know who the biggest ones are. Um, so, why should I believe, right, WHO, when I know that they are, you know, supported by these financial entities who have vested interest in, you know, pushing for certain things rather than others? You know, that big, big pharma is not a fantasy, it's real, you know? And uh, I was reading a piece today saying that maybe a signal that the, 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 the COVID pandemic is, is about to end is that big pharma have started to invest on uh, other diseases, not on not on the <laughs> So um, you know the idea that 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 these that these entities and institutions are independent. You know, it's unreal. It's it's something that people should stop. You know, stop believing in. They are not independent. They are, in many ways, controlled by money. Fundamentally, to um, you know, to cut a long story short. And we know they are, even though it's same, same in Europe, um, everywhere else in the world, there are constant conflict of interests, pressures of all sorts from above, from people that we don't even, you know, see and, and, and from a system. I think it's a, at, at systemic level that we should think, it. you know, not just blaming people like Bill Gates or others. They are part of this system. 
the system wants to reproduce itself and it will do so in whichever way it can, even if it means, um, you know, forcing certain kind of disastrous policies on people. Because all that matters is that the system continues. And I think with capitalism, we are, you know, the definition of capitalism as a kind of blind, anonymous system, profit-making system, it's really to be taken seriously. There is that as the dominant force, and then there are the functionaries, the bureaucrats of capital, which make sure that, that the system you know, reproduces itself. But it's, I think it's a systemic Kind of is a totality at work here, right? That we should think should think about, and we are not outside. We're also part of it ourselves, right? So let's not, you know, imagine that we are not. We are. It's a totality, and there's very very little that can be deemed to be outside this totality. Um, and I think that's that's the big problem that 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 this system is is not. It, it doesn't want to recognize that it's imploding fast. And, um, and we need critical voices. We need critical voices because that's the only way in which we can maybe consider the, the, the rebuilding of, um, of alternative social structures parallel or outside to an imploding system. I think that's the only way. Otherwise, we will be dragged into this implosion and without even recognizing it. That's, that's, even, that's even worse, you know, that you don't even recognize it. You're, you're all of a sudden much poorer, much you know, controlled, there's monetary slave. I mean, it's not just about money, but it's about like physical and psychological control too, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very easy to um, step into this kind of totalitarian uh, system. Um, and, and especially when, it, when it's controlled through very sophisticated technology. So it becomes very, very difficult then to step out of it once you're inside this, you know, this, this technologically controlled system, much harder than maybe a traditional authoritarian system um, where technology didn't play such a part. Yeah, and this, I think, brings us to the, you know, the other side of this sort of regime that's been emerging, which is the, the sort of biopolitical management side yeah. right where on one hand you have you know the rollout of these new um you know public health measures which are fundamentally you argue monetary in their function and then mm. on the other hand you have this um this kind of um extension of that you know where where initially you have the sort of promise of the the short-term lockdown proposed as the this, you know, the, the way to flatten the curve, but then, you know, gradually as that, you know, fails over and over again, you have the rollout of, of, you know, further measures, right. And most fundamentally, um, you know, this kind of digitized, um, mm. you know, attempt to regulate daily activity through, um, you know, through uh, vaccination passes, um, mm. testing, and so on, right? And so you say um, the consequences of emergency capitalism are emphatically biopolitical. They concern the administration of a human surplus that is growing superfluous for a largely automated, highly financialized, and implosive reproductive model. Hmm. So there's this sense that you know part of what's going on here is um, we have a, 
you know, as as capitalism has gone in the direction that you've been describing, right, of being um, financialized, automated, and sort of fictitious, um, what what you have alongside that is the sort of um, and you know this this is related to the crisis, right, which which has to do with the um, the inability to generate surplus value right. through labor. Um, and so instead what you have is this, um, human population that is increasingly superfluous. Yeah. Right. And so it needs to be managed in new ways. That's right. As, I yeah. think, you know, it, this is not new again, there's a number of theories to have said that before. I mean, Keynes himself talked about technological unemployment, you know, we can think of it in terms of technological underemployment, you know, it doesn't have to be unemployment. It can be some kind of under form of underemployment where, However, you don't create much value for yourself or for capital itself. So you end up with huge sort of masses with, without work um, in capitalist terms. And however, they need, they need somehow to be, um, you know, they, they need to be administered somehow. Um, so capitalism still needs some, some form of consumerism, right? It's not as if we, all of a sudden we find ourselves in a, totalitarian system that if it's a capitalist system it needs people to consume so um you know i think one way one way to allow that to happen is um i think in the long term to to get rid of cash and to create a system based on um digital currencies controlled by central banks um, and, you know, something like um, blockchain technology, for example, you know, very safe, very, not safe, but very strong type of technology that allows full control fundamentally of how, you know, people spend their money um, so that things like um, inflation or, or, or deflation can be prevented from becoming, you know, a real problem. Um, and I think that's what, what they have in mind, um, they are openly talking about it, right? About the use of digital currencies, central bank digital currencies, and and I. This is one of the ways in which I see technology and capitalism function uh, in the future, in kind of authoritarian terms. Now, it doesn't have to. I think it can still be a democracy in formal terms, right? We can still think of democracy in formal terms, but in actual fact, it will be this sort of controlled, centralized control economy, um, capitalist economy um, with legitimized and justified by uh, emergencies. And, and I think I go back to that idea of capitalism using emergencies, obviously the climate emergency is the next one coming. I think we, we, we know that it's been again, talked about a lot more and more recently. So that preparing, I think a narrative again with a real basis, right? A real basis once again, but something that they can use to scare people and to and to force them somehow or, or, or persuade them to accept um, this system of control, right? You know, the carbon footprint uh, society, as it were, where you know you will be conditioned or coerced to do certain things to avoid, um, you know, what they will publicize uh, you know as as a larger uh, disaster as a kind of you know catastrophe that needs to be avoided but in order to avoid it you have to be accept being subjected to these forms of control
more and more. And um, in monetary terms, I can see central bank digital currencies serving a very good purpose in that respect, you know, because uh, yeah, they allow direct control of, of what you do with your money fundamentally. And uh, obviously that, that would work especially, particularly well if cash is eliminated, physical cash is eliminated completely, which is something that, that I guess you can do, you could do fairly quickly by taxing cash, the use, of, the use of physical cash, for example, or things like that, you know. Um, so this sounds very dystopian, I know, but I think we need to be prepared and uh, we need to think about possible alternatives to this because it's becoming quickly very real, I think, right? We, we, we are seeing now what it means. Um, like I've, I know that in countries like Australia, you know, this, this is very real, countries like Italy, I, I, I'm from Italy, I've, I've been to Italy recently, and the use of the COVID pass, the, what they call the green pass over there in Italy is, 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 is first of all, completely legal, you know, it's, it's, or, 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 or we, could, we could describe it as a kind of legalized discrimination, because without COVID pass, you can't work. Um, you can't you use, you can't go on a train, um, you can't access society, basically, right? So um, it's really something unprecedented. It's, a, it's an acceleration in, in authoritarian terms, which, which is something that, as I said, is becoming very real. Now, I don't know if, or, you know, if it will be continued, um, but I think what will continue, I think, is the attempt to use emergencies to dominate people more and more. I think this is clear. I think this is something that people should be, aware of i mean to, to use emergencies in the sense of to create emergencies or to create the feeling that that these emergencies are you know we need to tackle them straight away in a certain way because otherwise they will destroy us yeah and i mean i think back here to the you know the war on terror which mm. you know i i also you know was i mean i lived in live in New York, was in New York, 9-11. Um, so, you know, was, I think, at a at a pretty young age, you know, my my whole sort of political mm. sensibility was, was shaped by that experience. Um, and I think, you know, one thing people forget is how, um, how successful it was initially at uniting the population, right? That, that basically, um, you know, people people accepted this narrative. Um, and I think, you know, you clearly see a kind of, and then, you know, that there was a kind of political, you know, peeling away from that because, you know, essentially for a while, the left was primarily defined by this kind of anti-war position. Then of mm. course, when, when Obama was elected and kept the wars going, it was pretty much everybody forgot about them <laughs> basically. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, it's, it's so, you know, one thing that's been interesting and I mean, one thing that's totally in a way changed my politics in the past two years is just that, um, you know, that the uh, seeing the same kind of response unfold um, where, you know, that, that all of these um, all of these things are justified in in response to emergency, but basically the people I would have agreed with, um, you know, basically on the left uh, <clears throat> 15 years ago are all mm. completely 
acquiescing Complicit. to it. Yeah. And this, you know, I, th I think this, you know, you've, you've critiqued um, <clears throat> Zizek's uh, work on, on mm. this. Um, I wrote about Benjamin Bratton's book, The Revenge of the Real, which is maybe the most, you know, explicit manifesto of this sort of left formation that's, that's arisen, right? This kind of pro-biopolitical um, left. And, yeah. you know, so it's, it's a useful book, if only in that it, it states everything directly um, and, and explicitly. Um, but, so, so you know, my, I think... My question, sorry, my yeah. question would be, why is this happening here, right? Because you get, you get the liberal left, okay, being complicit with the system, they are in power, they, 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 they want to also reproduce themselves as, as part of what power is now, economic power, etc. But then there's the radical left, or at least what portrays itself as the radical left, like uh, the Zizek type of left, you know, and, you know, I've always, I'm, I'm a Zizekian myself, I've always loved Zizek, it, you know, his philosophical perspectives and, you know, his theories are wonderful and very useful. But then you get this kind of political take on COVID, which, to be honest, kind of completely threw me, you know, I just, why is, 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 is he saying this? I, I just couldn't quite understand. And then, you know, I, I, I came across this idea from Zizek that, you know, this is the shortest way to communism or something, right? This is, you remember that image from, from Tarantino, right? Uh, that COVID is dealing this mortal blow to capitalism and uh, will, you know, will, will open for us the communist society of the future. And this kind of, and I think here I, I really kind of started suffering a little bit because how can you say that? First of all, what kind of communism are we talking about? Because it's, it's, it's okay to talk about communism, but then you have to define it as well and give it some kind of coordinates as well. Um, but, but also to, to think that this would open the way for communism, right? The, to me, is delusional, right? It's really delusional because what it actually opens the way for is, is more and more capitalism, but of, 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 of a kind of authoritarian or totalitarian type, which might be, might be with us for as long as we live or more, or more generations even if we don't do something about it. So that's, the, that's really what it does. And so to see the radical left um, complying, I, to me, it's like some of them, like Gigi probably thought, okay, you know, this is the way in which capitalism self-destroys. And then, it opens up, but to me, that's delusional, right? It's really missing, missing completely what's going on. It's, it's got, it's capitalism won't self-destroy like that. You know, it will try to kind of, as I said, um, reproduce itself through different means as it has always done. And now it will do it in a more violent way, you know, you know where, where systemic violence will become more tangible. For everybody, um, but you know, you want you want simply kind of morph into something else. You know, this Marxian idea that at some point after we go through capital capitalism, we, we will kind of almost spontaneously um, arrive at communism at some point, um, whether through a revolution or, or, or even by inertia. You know, uh, you know, this is not it's not something that you, that, that anybody can see happening, right? Um, it's, 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 it's quite kind of demoralizing to see even the radical left um, falling for this kind of COVID agenda. In many so, ways, yeah. 
Yeah, I have some thoughts about this. I mean, it, it relates somewhat back to my point about austerity. Mm. So, you know, it's interesting to me that all this occurred, you know, you had this kind of success, you had this emergence of sort of left populism after the yeah. 2008 crash, which at least in the Anglosphere sort of came to a head with Bernie Sanders and Jeremy mm -hmm. Corbyn. And, you know, that, that movement was, um, I mean, it literally collapsed almost exactly at the same moment that the pandemic hmm. narrative first emerged. Um, and so, you know, in some sense, I think it, it provided a sort of narrative um, reset, right. Where, um, and, and I think it, it you know, th there was this idea throughout um, that period that, I mean, it's interesting, right. You still have people, I was recently thinking about this concept of the green new deal, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I find it, this is just an aside, but I find it strange that in the, in like Britain and Europe, people are talking about the green new deal. I mean, the new deal is this American mm -hmm. historical phenomenon, you know, it has resonance for me because like, you know, my grandparents lived through that time and, you know, had fond reminiscences of, of how, you know, the government like helped them out, but, you know, it, it's just, it's such a, it's, it's become a, just a kind of floating signifier for, I think some kind of notion of a new social compact, right. Or a kind of re renovation of the social compact. Right. So there was some idea that we had to escape this neoliberal moment, right. Which had been sort of artificially prolonged after 2008, but was still, you know, kind of in crisis, which was true, but, um, but so that there, you know, the, the left populist belief was that you would elect this, you know, genuinely, left-wing governments and they would kind of finally put an end to, you know, 40 years of neoliberal hegemony and bring about some kind of new, um, new social compact, which would, you know, in a sense, and this is why the new deal language is important, you know, is in a sense, a kind of nostalgic um, right. desire for return to the sort of glorious sort of yeah. moment of, um, cool. of, of post-war prosperity. So it didn't really have much behind it. Right. As far as an analysis, it was mostly a kind of nostalgic project. Yes. But nevertheless, you know, as that evaporates, right, with the loss of the the labor um, labor in the UK elections in late 2019, and then with the collapse of the Bernie Sanders campaign in, in the US. And so what takes its place is this this sort of ad hoc dream of a new social compact, which is, you know, essentially a sort of COVID welfare state, I guess, where, you know, somehow the, the threat of the virus is uh, making the ruling class realize that it has to, um, you know, care about people. And so it must be right. good. And, you know, so this is, it's, it's sort of a, um, you know, the, the political project failed. And so it allows for this kind of apolitical fantasy that somehow, you know, due to this supposedly exogenous event, right? This exogenous, supposedly exogenous crisis, which I would argue is actually an endogenous crisis. Yeah. You know, it, it it somehow just shakes the system and and allows for this um, this newly humanitarian order to emerge. So it's a very odd fantasy. Yeah, it's a very odd, <laughs> I think it's a fantasy first of all because it, as I said, I mean, my point is that it totally misses. The, the the political economy behind it you know and if you and if you leave that out if you don't understand how the economy works today how capitalist economy works then you miss then you, you you're bound to get lost in these fantasies 
And, uh, you know, even the kind of Sanders, uh, Corbyn left was already a kind of fantasy in a way, because as you said, he was nostalgic of a work, of a work society that, that in a sense is no longer there. You know, even this notion of working class has been kind of disappearing for a while. And again, for imminent reasons, right? Because, because the system more and more doesn't quite know what to do with workers, you know? And, um, and whilst of course we should still um, be, you know, kind of in solidarity with, with the idea of work and, and workers, of course, you know, we are all uh, in a sense proletarians more and more. Um, at the same time, we should recognize that that uh, the wage work doesn't play the same system, the same role as it used to play within, you know, for capitalism. Capitalism doesn't quite know, so doesn't quite know what to do with it any longer. It doesn't need it. It doesn't need as much work as it used to, in a way. So politically, any kind of political movement that kind of harks back to that understanding of, 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 of work and the working class, for me, is unfortunately becoming quickly outmoded, you know? Um, and like many have said in the past, um, it's becoming more and more obvious today. So maybe there needs another. There needs to be another kind of rhetoric um, about uniting people who are being exploited by this. Not one based on those categories, which are really kind of growing obsolete in many ways. Um, but I think you're right in. In, 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 in describing that fantasy that you've been describing. Um, because like even Zizek talks about, you know, working class still talks about workers in a certain way, uh, almost as if that category had never changed through the years, right? Or through the decades, but it has undergone huge change. So um, maybe that's also a problem with, um, with, the Marxist, a lot of the Marxists left, you know, I know a lot of Marxists who simply are not ready to give up on, on that category, right? Um, understandably, but I think objectively we should recognize that there's been an imminent movement inside the system that has made that category more and more obsolete. Right, and this is another area where Baudrillard, I think, was mm. quite prescient and yeah. his understanding of how capitalism was evolving yeah this notion back of in the 1970s he was talking about financial simulation i think in yeah. very clear terms already using very very precise um concepts and and, and categories to describe it um but you know many others were were doing that I, i'm thinking of gortz andre gortz he also wrote in many books where he really captured very clearly this um what was going on uh with the within the working class of course and the other one uh, that i often mention is uh, robert kutz who's probably not as well known as others as, as goats for example a german thinker who uh, passed away recently well recently about 10 years ago i think or more 15 years ago um who really described you know very very well this um, this rise of a kind of um, um, kind of technological unemployment or underemployment, which makes the, the the working class more and more redundant redundant in capitalist terms, but at the same time, it creates this implosive context for capitalism, and it forces capitalism to capitals 
to, um, to kind of move towards the financial sector to look for profits there because the real economy is becoming less and less profitable. Precisely as a consequence of this kind of adoption of the of technology and automation, you know, which, um, and I, you know, I, I still discuss that with with a lot of people, a lot of friends who, you know, simply don't want to recognize. I think this, or if they kind of struggle to recognize that that the very notion of work and the work society is becoming less and less central to even to to, to the fight to the struggle. Yeah, and I mean, in some sense, you know, I, I see people on the left sort of acknowledge this and that, mm. you know, I mean, what I've noticed, I don't know, you know, I think it seems to me I don't have a, um, I don't have a strong sense of it, but maybe things are a little bit different in continental Europe. Mm. Um, it seems to me in, the, you know, Anglosphere, at least, you know, US and UK, often it's the left who are in fact, the most aggressive proponents sure. of, like, as far as I can tell, the only people who are saying we should have lockdowns again in the United States are left, are people, you know, leftists with, um, you know, Twitter and YouTube and so on platforms. Like nobody else actually thinks we should have a full lockdown except for them. I agree. Because they yes. actually believe, they actually believe in the sort of myth of the lockdown, right? They, they're they're I, the I only they, true believers in it's that. It's a kind of fantasy, as you said, yeah. that lockdowns mean solidarity somehow, right? That exactly. there's a kind of solidarity yeah. at work between people. I, you know, this is clear that they really believe that. Um, but what's but also, sure. yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah. carry on. Oh, no, no, but, but I was just going to say the other thing that's odd about this is it does seem to be a sort of tacit acknowledgement of this post-work situation, right? Mm. Because basically what they're saying is that mm. most of the work that people do is actually unnecessary, right? And so there's no reason we can't, you know, shut down society for a month because most of the work people do doesn't matter, right? It doesn't contribute anything. So well, they're, they're in effect acknowledging that even though they would also right. probably claim or, the, or they would also probably object to the analysis that you're... No, I think you're offering. right. I think, I, I think they actually, yes, I think they, they kind of know that, 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 you know, that, but then if, if that's the case, then they kind of, um, they, they happy, they are happy with the system where, you know, you, you're given some money, a kind of UBI system, a, you know, universal benefit system where you're, you're given a little bit of money to stay on the sofa all day and watch Netflix and do no work because there's no work really, or maybe a little bit of work here and there, but ultimately like a zero hour contract type of job, you know, um, but the rest is the state or rather the central banks who provide the ammunition for you to, to carry on, to, to consume a little bit, to have a little bit of, but to me, that's, that's, that's a terrible world. You know, it's not a world I would like to, you know, my, 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 my daughters to, to grow, to grow up in. I, you know, this not because it's, 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 it's a control society, full control society, where the moment you do something wrong, you'll have to pay a price for it, in, you know, from their perspective, from the perspective of using money in a certain way or, or, or using your, sort of exceeding your, your carbon footprint in, in one way or another. And I think maybe you're right. The left are quite happy, would be quite happy with this model. Um, and who knows, maybe some of them will even call it socialism. Which... Yeah, and, and this, I mean, it's interesting also, there's been this vogue for this um, modern monetary theory, yes, right? which as far absolutely. as I can tell is, is really just a, I mean, it, it's fascinating because it's presented it's as... It's not even a theory. Right? <laughs> what kind of theory is that? You know, it's not a theory. It's just printing money and giving it to the state for public spending. And yeah. it's not real money. Once yeah, again, yeah. capitalism, real money comes from capital investing in labor. 
if it if it comes from central banks, it's just you know inflation waiting to happen or you know deflation waiting to happen, which is the same thing in terms of creating devaluation of money, which which you know will hit us hard as soon as it it falls on the ground. And you know, so MMTs as well. I, I you know there's a lot of pro- professors, academics who are behind MMT, um, but to me, it, it's not even a theory. So you know, it's just unfortunate that 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 the left also sort of hangs on to this sort of you know theories. Um, yeah, and and you had this kind of. Um... You know, it w- another sort of little trend on the left in, in the years before all of this was the fully automated luxury communism, right? This, right. this sort I, of, yeah. um, you the know, book, the, right. these... The book that, yeah. Yes, exactly. Which, which were kind of where they were, they were borrowing these sort of Silicon Valley, right. um, you know, vision, futurist visions and saying, you know, what... I, I think part of what they, you know, was linked to this kind of anti-austerity agenda, Right. But it's interesting to see, I mean, even this guy who was the, you know, Aaron Bastani, who wrote that Bastani, book, you know, if, right, you, yeah. if you follow his um, Twitter posts, you know, he's very much um, demanding that we go back to lockdowns and things like that. Really? So, oh, yeah. Gosh. So yes. it's, um, <laughs> so it's, it's extremely interesting because I think the, the way it sort of makes sense is because, you know, what they are, you know, it, it is a high tech world that they're demanding it's just it's one of of um a kind of general impoverishment of of life but um but but which is but which is at the same time you know completely digitized so in that sense you know can be be sort of smuggled into this vision of a sort of science fiction future of abundance and then of course you know what's the other thing that's kind of interesting is the um the abundance you know we have you know these kind of weird we have the version of abundance that you've been discussing, right? Which is the kind of abundance of, of you know, central banks just generating infinite fake money. And then we also have the kind of, um, the kind of fake abundance of the digital, right? Where, you know, if, if you're living your life primarily through digital platforms, you know, th- there's sort of no limit to the amount of, of sort of goods that you can accrue, but they're entirely artificial, right? right. They're, they're, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, it's whether it's video games or sort of gamified mm-hmm. social media, right. You're, you're in a sense, um, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of version of this post money economy of abundance, right. But which is, which is enabled by this kind of generalized impoverishment of existence. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't know how far this delusion will be able to stretch, you know, but you're right that a lot of people are sort of adopting it as a fantasy and they think it's real. Um, I, I, I see a lot of, you know, a lot of like, if this is, if this is the future, then it would be a terrible one. You know, this is, this, we shouldn't, we shouldn't wish that on, on, on our children and the next generations, I don't think, but um, right. Yeah. That's, another that's, thing is <laughs> and one other thing I wanted to discuss is, you know, we, we had, as we mentioned, this kind of left populist challenge to the extent that it was that, um, which, you know, it kind of, I think collapsed under the weight of its own contradictions. Um, but then we also had this kind of, these kind of right populist challenges. Right. And so one thing that's been interesting 
to see is, you know, in a pretty direct way, you could argue that, you know, I mean, I mean, and I think, um, you know, something like Trump was not the Trump phenomenon was not a challenge to the functioning of the financial of financialized capital, as you've been describing it. No. Um, it was a, it was a kind of ideological challenge to the hegemony of of these these sort of um you know, th this particular sector of, of sort of global capitalist elites, um, that, that it, it did in some sense frighten them because it, um, because it, it pointed to some limitation to their ability to, uh, to, you know, govern frictionlessly. <clears throat> but, you know, I, I think that it, it was a, a relatively weak sort of ideological challenge rather than yes. a profound one. But nevertheless, you know, another function, another interesting side benefit anyway of the pandemic is in various ways, it kind of allowed for the vanquishing of those, of, of those challenges too, because, mm. you know, I mean, in the context of the U S at least, I mean, I, I, I find, I mean, I've made this argument um, and written something about it, but, I don't think people recognize the extent to which the escalation of censorship was linked to the the need to combat so-called you know disinformation about the pandemic. So right. yeah. basically, you know the the most extreme um, or you know it's 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 clear that you know there's been this escalation of censorship, but but the most extreme initial measures were taken against people who were questioning any aspect of the sort of yeah. pandemic narrative. I, I've experienced it firsthand, I have to say, yeah. when I was writing a book that is coming out soon and I wasn't really allowed to talk about certain things. So I kind of had to smuggle them in, right, without them noticing it. It's really bizarre the way I had to do it. Never had, it, never had that happening to me before, right? First time that I experienced censorship like that. The way it was put to me is that if I talk about COVID in a certain way, then that is is disturbing politically because it kind of makes me sound as if I'm on the right and and which is you know crap but and I explained very well that I'm not like I'm not I'm not supporting that kind of rhetoric either I'm I'm saying certain things but the moment I say them I you know it becomes politically very sensitive as they put it and therefore it cannot be there which is just like censorship like there's always been, right? One way you can put it nicely or not, but it still prevents you from saying what you want to say. And, you know, in an argument, in a, in a rational, you know, argument. And, um, and, and um, yeah, I think in the US was particularly, I don't know, I don't think it's like that any longer. I, I have a feeling it's, it's changed a little bit, but certainly a year ago, it was profoundly like that, um, especially with the Biden-Trump um antagonism um, and the division, you know, going on in the country, which is still there, I guess. Um, but I, I, I've got a feeling that moment is maybe gone or maybe it's not, it's not as bad as it used to be a year ago. I don't know what, what your feelings are about that. I, I think it's, it, it, it's particularly new. I mean, I've experienced it there because the publisher was American publisher. And, you know, they, they really kind of substantiated it in terms of, you know, there's a kind of political war going on here. You can't say certain things because they will be misinterpreted or because, you know. Yeah. And then, I mean, there's also, you know, the thing I've been interested in is the way that there's a sort of parallel between the, the sort of 
infovirus, right? This idea yeah, of the, yeah, this yeah. kind of um, contagious disinformation. Right. And then the idea that that directly enables the spread of the virus. I mean, it's a very brilliant um, yes, good idea. means of, of justifying all kinds of censorship, because the idea is that as soon as you let these, Id these ideas out there, then people are going to directly die as a result of them, right? So we yeah. saw an earlier version of this with, you know, it was basically during the Trump era, there were all kinds of attempts to say, oh, these, these types of speech are causing terrorist events to happen. So we have to crack down on them. All but, news, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, but then um, with the virus, it really became much more and be, became much easier to justify this. And then the other thing that happens again, in terms of kind of vanquishing this, this mm. um, ideological challenge is that, you know, it, it, it's a way of, you can basically frame your enemies as just pure vectors of disease, like that they're, they're no longer people with a legitimate, you know, ideological position within the pandemic. They're, 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 um, they're sort of um, purely understood as, as um, as a, in a sense, kind of carriers of a pathogen, right? <laughs> so. Absolutely. No, this is happening in, in Italy, unfortunately, at the moment. There's this, the media are bombarding really the, the people with this idea that if you're not vaccinated, you you know they're creating a scape uh, you know a scapegoat fundamentally. It's scapegoating pure and simple, and I think that. Yes, it's about creating this horizontal war, this horizontal conflict amongst people, certainly, because if you have an enemy, if people have an enemy, of course, they would be much more acquiescent to what's happening around them. Um, and also, it's precisely, I think, mass destruction, right? It's, it's, it's distracting people with this constant blah, 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 this constant background noise. If you turn on the television in Italy, it's just debates about about anti-vaxxers, debates about, you know, uh, the efficacy of the vaccine, like percentages, 79%, falling to 40%, three months, four months, five months. It's all that, right, nonstop, this, as if there's nothing else going on in the world. So I think that really works as a wall of, 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 of chit-chat, of, of, of blah, 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 that, that stops stops you know people from thinking about the real virus again, which now takes the form of at the moment is taking the form of inflation. So that is not discussed. That the cause of inflation is not discussed. You know what I mean? Simply because people are too busy, you know, talking about statistics about you know who's in hospital, not in hospital, and you know the evil the evil anti-vaxxers who are kind of. Um, you know they are they really are connected to this notion of that kind of terrorist really isn't it i mean it's it's you know it used to be the the islamic terrorist now it's the the anti-vaxxers but they kind of fall into the same category a kind of public enemy number one they need to be and we see ter terrifying consequences already right if you quarantine camps in australia i don't know whether you've seen images of that um and 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 decisions political decisions that really discriminate like hugely and again it's painful to see the left who's even the, the more recent sort of civil right left who's always been against any form of discrimination right not saying much about this very violent type of discrimination against people who maybe decide not to undergo certain medical treatments right um so yeah it's it's i think it's a, it's a sign that it can get much worse um if we continue to be acquiescent to all this, it's pretty, 
pretty awful. You know, in Italy, countries like Italy, unfortunately, it's um, very, very bad at the moment. Um, and I think the state of emergency has already been today or maybe yesterday been prolonged again once more. So we're still, we will still be in a state of emergency at least until end of March 2022, which incidentally coincides with the end of what is known as PEP, so the kind of uh, emergency uh, program of the central of the European Central Bank. So um, the you know the, the, the kind of money printing basically of of of, of uh, the European Central Bank. So again, the kind of it's not a coincidence that state of emergency is is, is prolonged until the end of supposedly the end of the the the, um, the central bank printing so spree. Um, but again, I think. Um, all this doesn't quite reach people, you know, um, because they're too busy thinking about, you know, variants and and um, and and all these things which are related to virus. Yeah, and I think you know that there is perhaps a. Uh, I, I I think that the narrative does maybe have an expiration date of some sort mm. where, you know, on some level people will, you know, this, right. I mean, simply yeah. because it's driven by media cycles and eventually people get bored of certain <laughs> narratives. <laughs> I out and of so, boredom, right? They just but, so bored. I think it's happening already perhaps. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah. and I think you've seen that a little bit with this latest variant, but at the same time, you know, I think what we've seen is just, again, a sort of trial balloon for, larger right. um, I think so yeah. system of of crisis management that can be rolled out on other pretexts in the future so and that's yeah. because that's people don't have this larger perspective you know they're they're more or, or as long as people don't have this larger perspective they're likely to be um, credulous about the next version of it I agree I think that's why we need this kind of larger as you say sort of big picture right perspective where we see that it has got to do with uh, with other um, other reasons uh, beyond that. Um, but yeah, I think I think the, the other thing I think we should, we should maybe consider is quickly is that um, you know maybe maybe we should we should give this we should people we should we shouldn't give the people who are kind of um, pushing all these narratives um, the intelligence that they don't have. Right? I think they are also trialing all this. Little by little. So, how long can the virus narrative, you know, go for? And then maybe they prolong it a little bit if need be. If they see that inflation is going up a lot, like it is now, then they, they bring out Omicron, South African variant, which which will do some good to, to deflation, you know, to kind of control that inflation. So they they're sort of moving little by little, testing the waters, right? Not not quite sure if you know, but certainly they have, I think, a number of emergency narratives. In waiting in line uh, to be used. So we shouldn't be surprised at all and we should rather prepare because it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave off and uh, just, you know, thanks for the conversation. Thank you. And Jeff. I recommend everybody read the, um, the recent pieces by Fabio that I will link in the show notes. Brilliant. Brilliant.